You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. There's safety in numbers. They cannot fire all of us. And that we're the ones who make the workplace run. Without us, it's nothing. We're in a situation now at this university where for years and years, for decades, it's been moving from a place of learning into an almost like profit-driven institution that's primary concern is enlarging the endowment. And I think this was hopefully a turning point in standing up for that and saying that like enough is enough, we're, the university is us. It's not these administrators, like, you know, pencil pushing bureaucrats, it's the students and the workers and the faculty who make it run and who are its soul. And that's true of any organization, of any workplace. I'll also add that I hope one of the things we showed is that these broader social justice issues can be as big of a mobilizing factor as what's typically called bread and butter issues. You know, we've been having conversations in our union for years about this kind of thing, because, you know, we're in a right-to-work environment. We have to keep our membership number up or else we're going to go under. And there's always been this sort of question within the leadership. Should we take a radical stance and fight for what we know is right? Or should we take a more moderate stance out of fear of pushing away members? Well, what this strike has shown is that when our union takes a radical stance, when it stands up for members, when it shows what our power actually is, that brings people in rather than driving people away. People want a strong union that's willing to fight, that shows that it's worth its salt, and that is relevant in the issues that are present in our members' lives. On this episode of Labor Wave, we speak with Amir Fleischman, a member and officer of the Graduate Employee Organization at the University of Michigan, about their latest strike protesting their university administrators' reckless reopening plans amidst a pandemic, as well as issuing calls for disarming and defunding the campus police. We touch on various aspects of the strike, including the background which led to the strike, the ways the union was able to overcome fear of their membership around waging an illegal strike, the mechanics of the strike, particularly during a pandemic, the coalition building that occurred, as well as the victories, both partial and inspiring for the Graduate Employee Organization and the future prospects the union has in front of them. Labor Wave is an independent podcast. All of our ability to sustain the show comes from patrons. So if you enjoy the show and you want to help us continue to flourish, please join our Patreon. Either you can become a rank and filer, a committee member, or a strike captain. Folks that do join the Patreon receive gifts of appreciation, including custom-made stickers, illustrated zines, and original t-shirts. All of these are regular gifts that we give just to show our appreciation for all of our listeners and subscribers. Please also share our content on our various social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also like us on SoundCloud and Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Even leaving comments and reviews 
helps these algorithms expand the reach of our show and gets our content out to more listeners. We on Labor Wave are really excited about our upcoming content, including a celebration of the life and ideas of David Graeber, an interview with Marina Citrin and Vanessa Zettler about the legacy of Occupy Wall Street, a conversation with the angry workers based in the UK about their latest book, Class Power on Zero Hour, and a concluding conversation on the book No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power by Jane McAlevey. All this and more coming up on Labor Wave. To get us started, can you tell our listeners your name and just your role in the Graduate Employee Organization? Yeah, sure. My name is Amir Fleischman. I'm secretary for GEO. Uh, I'm a graduate student, a PhD student at the University of Michigan in the political science department, and I study uh, political theory. And what was your role in the union specifically? So I'm the secretary of the organization. So um, I'm in charge, I guess, of institutional memory and sort of I just have a, I don't know, sort of like a bird's eye view of the organization, kind of coordinating different bodies and working on strike strategy. During the strike, I uh, led picket shifts, did some press work and just tried to help make sure all the gears were fitting together. At the time of this recording, and to my knowledge, GEO has been the only higher education union to go on strike in the fall prior to reopening. And so what I'm hoping we can do is for our listeners give a bit of a play-by-play of like what went down. So maybe we could start first with what was the background leading up to the strike? Like what happened immediately prior that kind of led to it? Back in May, GEO put out a letter, an open letter with a series of demands for what we would need for um, a safe campus reopening. This open letter was signed by over 1,800 graduate students and community members, but was essentially ignored by the university. They sent us, you know, a formal response that didn't really commit them to doing anything or address any of our concerns. And then over the summer, you know, we had a series of meetings with various deans that didn't really go anywhere. We held protests, we wrote op-eds, we had a car rally, organized a series of town halls for our members to understand what their needs were. And we had a month and a half of impact bargaining with the university, all which didn't really get what we needed. So then as the university's reopening plans became clearer and it became obvious how totally inadequate and reckless they were, uh, there became more of a demand for action. I guess dissatisfaction had been brewing on campus all summer. The University Board of Regents, uh, seven and eight of whom are Democrats, I would add, uh, approved a budget that increased tuition for undergraduates, even amidst this economic crisis. Uh, So undergrads are starting to get very angry at the university. As the incompetency of the reopening plan became clear, faculty started to get very angry as well. There was a meeting a few weeks ago where they decided that they would have a vote of no confidence in the president. So that was a bit of a turning point for us because it became clear that there was campus-wide support for action against the reopening plan. Um, After that, things started moving pretty quickly. Uh, We called a vote to send out the strike ballot. It passed overwhelmingly, and we approved a four-day strike uh, beginning the day after Labor Day. And so let's talk a little bit more about like what happened in the strike. So what were the demands of the strike first before we talk about the timeline of activities? 
Yeah, so we had a series of demands. One of them was the unconditional option to teach remotely. Uh, another one was for a funded degree timeline extension for all graduate students, many of whose research has been severely delayed by the pandemic. Because if you have to like go out into the field or even work in a lab over the summer to do your research, you weren't able to do that at all in the summer. So we needed an extension. Um, we were ask also asking for additional support for parents and caregivers, which was super important because Ann Arbor public schools are entirely online this semester. So any graduate student parents and caregivers uh, need additional childcare for children who would otherwise be in school but now need to be watched. We had demands for more support for international students, especially important in light of uh, the way Trump was you know, fucking around with our visas over the summer. Uh, we had also a series of policing demands, which were incredibly important. Um, we were calling for a 50% budget cut to uh, DPSS, the campus cops. We're calling for the University of Michigan to follow other comparable institutions like the University of Minnesota in cutting ties with local law enforcement and immigration and customs enforcement, ICE. And we wanted to disarm the campus cops who currently are engaged in a program where they buy like military equipment from, uh, I think, either the DOD or DHS, um, totally unnecessary for a uh, university campus. Well, you know, grad students can be pretty scary. Uh, I anticipate you need lots of armed gear and military-sized equipment to uh, fight them off. Yeah, well, if they had followed through with the injunction, that may have been the case. <laughs> you know, the demands, I think, are something that's really interesting and have a lot of implications in terms of like the scope of labor unions in terms of like what we should actually be fighting for. And I'm just kind of curious about how did you all generate these demands? Because like from a distance, the impression that I get from labor organizing in general is that there's a lot of caution around adding to list of demands, things beyond bread and butter, meaning like wages, benefits, health and safety. Okay. That applies right? But like health and safety in a very narrow definition. So how did y'all generate the plans and come to the conclusion that included within that needed to be disarming and defunding the police? To, to go back a little bit, we had our contract, we had like our contract campaign last year. And um, our contract expires sort of mid-April. Um, so just when we were preparing to go on strike, the pandemic hit and kind of took the wind out of our sails. Because, you know, this was like the least of our members' concerns was the contract negotiation when that was going on, justifiably. And in this campaign, we had run sort of, you know, a bargaining for the common good campaign, where we had really centered in our platform issues like climate change, anti-policing demands, uh, housing demands, because the housing market is horrible in Ann Arbor. And so we had to take a contract that didn't really achieve anything on those issues, like pretty much nothing. So I think there was still some desire amongst our membership for that to happen. I'll also add that the you know, national uprisings against racist policing that were occurring all over the country this summer certainly galvanized our membership and showed to everybody how important these demands were. And these really are bread and butter issues for some of our members. Because if you're on campus and you're getting harassed by campus cops, that's a workplace safety issue. And I think that we would not have been able to have as much success as we did with the policing demands if it weren't for the work and bravery of African-American activists over the summer who really centered these issues and put them in the national spotlight as they deserve to be. 
So, I, but I do think that, and oh, sorry, I'd also add that we don't view our pandemic demands and our anti-policing demands as separate. They're connected in two ways. So first is really explicit, which is that the university, you know, at a time when other universities are cutting off uh, relations with local law enforcement, actually use the pandemic as an excuse to expand cooperation with Ann Arbor PD, uh, which is just so out of touch with the moment. It's really incredible. They had this program called uh, the Michigan Ambassadors Program, where they were essentially empowering community members to act as vigilantes and call the cops on other students who may not have been abiding by social distance. Initially, this program was going to have these so-called ambassadors accompanied by armed cops roaming around campus, which is, you know, just totally irrational and flies in the face of everything we know about how police operate. But they had to roll that back because it was just so obvious how much of a mistake it was. Uh, ultimately, through the work of some undergraduate activists in um, what's called the Students of Color Liberation Front at the University of Michigan, that program has been discontinued entirely, which is great. So then, like, how are the policing and pandemic demands connected in a second way? So this is more implicit. And this has to do with the fact that both the pandemic and the crisis of racist policing disproportionately affect the same communities who tend to be the most vulnerable uh, and tend to be people of color. Yeah, I want to return to some of the things you were just saying and like elaborate on them more. But before getting there, maybe we can uh, start talking about like the timeline of the strike itself. Because you said initially what was authorized was the four day strike, but you all ended up going on strike for more than a week. So let's let's ask you like what happened like first, second, third, you know, all the steps that led up to finally victories. Yeah, the first day went ahead pretty smoothly. We had on the first day, you know, we picketed in front of construction sites and the construction workers didn't cross our picket lines, which was incredible to see. Um, and that was really important because that cost the university hundreds of thousands of dollars every day that those sites aren't running. By the second day, other groups on campus had started taking action. So the resident advisors, the RAs, who are undergrads who are sort of act as, who work in the dorms supervising other undergrads, um, also went out to strike over workplace safety conditions, asking for hazard pay, PPE, more protection and better knowledge about who in their dorms was COVID positive, et cetera. So they went on strike and they don't have a union. So that was really incredible to see. Additionally, these are the RAs because they're paid with room and board. They tend to be low income undergrads. So they were really putting a lot at risk by going on strike here without the protection of the union and risk of losing, you know, their housing. So that was very inspirational for us. There was also a lot of organizing by uh, UM dining employees, also student workers, who were uh, furious at the lack of safety protections they were receiving from the university. On Wednesday, the second day of the strike, the university made us an offer, which gave us virtually nothing on our policing demands. So there was some discussion about whether or not we should take this. We had a general members meeting. At the time, the largest general members meeting that GEO has ever had. And we took a straw poll sort of at the beginning of the meeting when the, after the offer was presented. And 70%, something like that, of our members at the meeting were in favor of accepting the offer. But then because of the discussion and deliberation we had, when the actual vote happened, um, we overwhelmingly rejected the offer because it became clear I think our members were convinced that we did have to keep fighting for these policing demands 
that the offer the university gave us was totally inadequate and that we had more that we could get out of them. So that was a really incredible moment for us. Uh, then after that, we continued the strike for a few more days. We hadn't received an, an offer by Friday. So uh, over the weekend, we had a vote of whether to extend the strike by another five days, uh, which also passed overwhelmingly. Something like 80% voted for the extension. Um, and then by Tuesday, we had another offer from the university. And they had filed an injunction against us um, because our strike was technically illegal. And they were threatening to sue our union um, essentially into bankruptcy and, you know, potentially arrest uh, some of the union leadership if the strike continued after the injunction went through. I guess they filed the injunction like initially on Monday, but because they're so incompetent, they like messed something up in the paperwork and had to refile it on Tuesday. So that's honestly. You mean, you mean the university bosses yeah. messed up their own filing? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which is uh, typical. And I guess, uh, you know, it's just indicative of how much faith we should have in them. <laughs> they can't get that right. How can they possibly run a pandemic response? So yeah. And then on Tuesday, I guess we got another offer. I'm sorry, I'll add that the offer we had turned down on Wednesday, the university told us was an exploding offer. So they told us that if we rejected that, we'd get nothing. We wouldn't have another chance to take it. That was total bullshit. We rejected that offer and the offer they ended up giving us was a better offer. In that, the offer we ended up taking, we had, we had much better wins for childcare, which was an important issue for us. We had wins for international students. Uh, we won the ability to cancel an in-person class if a student comes not wearing a mask. We won a grievance procedure for unsafe in-person teaching that gives us a lot of power, including a seat at the sort of arbitration committee, which is really unprecedented for this kind of grievance procedure. Um, and we won some important things on policing. So the policing wins, I would say, materially leave a bit to be desired. We didn't get any defunding, we didn't get demilitarization, and we didn't get even cutting ties with ICE, which is such a basic and straightforward demand. But we did force the university to actually negotiate with us on these issues. And that's something they haven't done before. In our previous contract campaign and up until the rejection of the first offer, the university maintained that policing issues were outside the scope of our contract and we're not something that we should bargain over. Um, the power of our strike and having our membership so behind us and so explicitly behind us on these issues proved to the university that they had to talk to us about them. And in doing so, the university implicitly admitted that these are labor issues that do belong in labor negotiations. And the second offer, when I was reading up on what happened, the second offer sounded like it was overwhelmingly approved, like not even a hardly a minority fraction of the vote voted against accepting it. Is that correct? That's correct. So I'll say that that overwhelming approval, um, I think, had unfortunately more to do with the threat of the injunction than with the contents of the offer. People did not, we did not feel that we could really get more from the university with the injunction hanging over our heads like that. It's hard to say if that's true. But that is the case. So even though we were kind of forced into this offer a little bit, um, we feel that we're in a very powerful position right now. Our union membership is the highest it's been since Right to Work was passed in Michigan. Our members are energized and really behind 
uh, this platform, which we're going to continue to fight for and we're going to continue to mobilize for with other campus unions who, uh, with whom we work very closely. It sounds too like you are able to motivate and inspire a coalition of allies. So how important was the support outside of your immediate bargaining unit for the strike and maintaining it? You know, I know it's probably speculation, but how important do you think it would have been to get the concessions that you ultimately did achieve? Uh, It was incredibly important, for sure. Definitely uh, the support from the RAs and the dining workers showed that the issues were beyond graduate students and couldn't really be, you know, waved away as some of the administrators sought to do. One thing I forgot to mention is that on Wednesday, the faculty voted uh, no confidence in the president of the university, um, which is the first time that's ever happened in the multi-century history of the University of Michigan. So that was also incredible to see. I will say, however, that I was a little bit disappointed in the faculty for not standing up more for what was going on, because these issues really are not restricted to graduate students. And if there's a severe COVID outbreak in our community, as there are right now because of the dangerous reopening plans, the faculty are going to be as affected as we are. And even if they're not teaching in-person classes, they're not going to be escaping because we all shop at the same grocery stores. You know, we all live in the same community and it's not going to be restricted to campus. So I would have liked to see more faculty canceling their classes. Um, I think we could have done more to organize with our sibling union, the lecturers union. They had reasons for not staging a walkout themselves because their uh, contract is expiring in the new year and they faced massive layoffs over the summer. So they're in a much more precarious situation than we are. But I think if we had tried more to organize with them for a walkout over the remote work option, that would have been able to apply more pressure. Uh, And then, of course, the support from the building trades was incredible. We picketed several construction sites. Many, many construction workers refused to cross our picket lines, which was an incredible show of solidarity. For the faculty lecturers union, does that union include tenured professors or is that union specifically like adjuncts and instructors amongst faculty? Uh, Non-tenured track. Yeah, so adjuncts. I asked that question and I hear what you're saying too about like the support, but also the places where it's lacking. Because in a lot of higher ed experiences I've had and witnessed, it does seem to me the people that actually have the least to lose are the ones that are also the least willing to do anything. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to throw shade on tenured professors, particularly the Marxist ones. They often are actually not your friends. And they could throw their weight behind these things, but they don't do it. They allow grad workers to take the risk and like lead the way. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there are even professors in my department who are, you know, pre-tenure. So they're like only one step less precarious than we are, who were canceling classes in solidarity with us while uh, tenured faculty were not doing so. So that was disappointing. Yeah, I guess the faculty also like, they had two votes in that meeting, one that was no confidence in the president, which passed, and one that was no confidence in the reopening plan, which didn't pass. And that was really astounding that that vote didn't pass. And these votes all all add, they're purely symbolic. So they're like, yeah, I guess you talked about Marxist professors, they're kind of like ignoring the materialism of the analysis here by not withholding labor and doing a, you know, almost an empty gesture. I was reading the kind of like live action tweets that I believe GEO was providing in terms of the faculty senate meeting that was happening over these no confidence votes. And it was interesting to see that it was very clear you all had had a lot of impact and influence over the discussion they were even having at all. And some of them were using 
the strike as an opportunity to like kind of take on more of a brave voice in these deliberations, but they still ultimately didn't succeed in passing the no confidence vote in the reopening plan. The president and the administration more broadly are just up to their necks in scandals. Last year, the provost of the university was forced to resign uh, due to a series of sexual harassment claims that came to light. And the reports that we've seen since then make it clear that either the president knew about these and did nothing, or he definitely should have known and was not like reading reports that were being put on his desk about this kind of thing. So that was also a factor, I think, in why like the reopening plan didn't receive no confidence, but the president himself did. It's really shameful to see this. And I think one of the biggest disappointments has been the regents who, yeah, as I mentioned before, seven out of eight of them are Democrats. And a lot of them are Democrats who GEO worked hard to elect, who we were knocking on doors for in 2018, 2016, but refused to stand up for us and even went so far as to issue a statement of confidence in the president after the faculty vote, uh, which is just despicable. So there's a lot to be desired in terms of the outcomes. I guess I would say under capitalism, victory is always partial, right? (laughs) Until we completely overthrow this thing. But I am really impressed by the victories you all were able to accomplish. And I have to say, particularly during a pandemic, I was hoping to learn more about the mechanics of the strike. Very specifically, how were you all able to like feel your presence during lockdown? I'm assuming a lot of folks were doing like a mismatch of online and in-person teaching. There's probably both a mismatch of students in person, but online. So how are you able to be felt, you know, as striking workers under these conditions? We had a mix of in-person and virtual pickets. The in-person ones, we tried to, you know, cap the number of people at each picket um, so that we could maintain six feet between each picketer. I guess because it was all outdoors and we had seen the success and safety of the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, we were fairly confident that if we took sufficient safety precautions, that we would be able to do it safely. And I think that has been validated. The online pickets were also pretty successful. We had campaigns where we were, you know, like overloading the regents' uh, email addresses and phone lines. We had, you know, like meme-making workshops and things like that, teach-ins. We had some very successful um, town halls with other stakeholders in the universities. So for faculty and for university staff, where they could ask us questions about our demands, and uh, discuss them, uh, which were really great. So I guess, though, the in, a lot of the in-person pickets in front of the university buildings were more or less symbolic because people weren't really going in. So, for example, we could picket in front of the administration building, but the dean isn't working there. She's working from home. However, the pickets in front of the construction sites were not symbolic. We shut down the construction sites. So that really hurt the university. Even the more symbolic ones were important for our morale and to you know, educate each other and show our support and make our presence heard on campus, which was important. Yeah, on that note about morale, because earlier you were mentioning that the strike was illegal for you all because you were under terms of a contract, which I'm assuming means you have a no-strike clause, which are pretty standardized in collective bargaining agreements in the United States. Was there a lot of fear in going on strike because of the illegality of it? And how were you all able to maybe address that or overcome it? Or what did it even look like? 
There was a big struggle with this over the summer in union leadership and amongst the membership about how safe we would be doing a strike in the middle of our contract. And I mean, yes, the no strike clause is one thing. It's also illegal in the state of Michigan for uh, education workers to strike at all, which is incredibly undemocratic uh, and draconian to have those kinds of laws. There was a big discussion about this, and I would say the turning point sort of came uh, when at that faculty senate meeting where they decided they would be holding the vote of no confidence in the president. At that point, it became clear that, one, just how dire the situation at the university was, and two, uh, how widespread our support would be. It's unusual for us to be going on strike and have, you know, this many faculty supporting us. It's unusual for us to be going on strike and having the kind of media coverage we did. And that's just because of really how reckless and unacceptable the university's uh, reopening plan was and how obvious that was for all to see. Yeah, it definitely caught my attention. Well, this makes me wonder about the kind of broader implications of the example that you all were able to set. Because on this show, we've had a lot of conversations about contracts and no strike causes and the inherent limits of it. You were saying earlier that the injunction itself had a likely a demobilizing impact on the strike. So potentially, you know, this is a guess, but maybe, maybe without that, you could have won more. That's a hypothetical. I guess you never know. But you know that the injunction was real and the threat of the injunction was there. And it was only because of like the state you live in and the contract that you're under that that was possible. But you still went on strike and you still waged an illegal strike. And I'll add, not just on strike, this was the second longest strike in the history of our union since it was first founded in 1975 with a month and a half long strike. So what do you think the lessons are there for folks, like for, for particularly for like mainstream unions that are under this like labor relations paradigm? You all took the risk. What do you think other folks should learn from the risk that you were taking and the lessons that you, know, you were able to learn on the ground? So I think these are lessons that the labor movement already knows, but maybe needs to relearn that there's safety in numbers. They cannot fire all of us and that we're the ones who make the workplace run without us. It's nothing. And this is like we're in a situation now at this university where for years and years, for decades, it's been moving from a place of learning into an almost like profit driven institution. That's primary concern is enlarging the endowment. And I think this was hopefully a turning point in standing up for that and saying that, like, enough is enough. We're the university is us. It's not these administrators, like, you know, pencil pushing bureaucrats. It's the students and the workers and the faculty who make it run and who are its soul. And that's true of any organization, of any workplace. I'll also add that I hope one of the things we showed is that these broader social justice issues can be as big of a mobilizing factor as what's uh, typically called bread and butter issues. In, you know, we've been having conversations in our union for years about this kind of thing, because, you know, we're in a right to work environment. We have to keep our membership number up or else we're going to go under. And there's always been this sort of question within the leadership. Should we take a radical stance and fight for what we know is right? Or should we take a more moderate stance out of fear of pushing away members? Well, what this strike has shown is that when our union takes a radical stance, when it stands up for members, when it shows what our power actually is, that brings people in rather than driving people away. People want a strong union that's willing to fight, that shows that it's worth its salt, 
and that is relevant in the issues that are present in our members' lives. And you have the numbers to back it up. As you said before, you had the largest meetings ever, and you also have the highest membership in your history. After running the longest strike over something that I think mainstream unionists wouldn't call a bread and butter fight, even though I agree with what you were saying before, it is more bread and butter than we're understanding. It's just that we have a very narrowed understanding of what it means to live bread and butter. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Uh, there's a couple of things you said that just light up my my mind <laughs> and hearten me to hear. But the one is that I think we have gotten into a situation in, within organized labor where we've misunderstood the power dynamic. And the power seems to be assumed is completely in the control of the bosses and the law. The labor relations framework is the power. So getting the contract is the only power that we can have. What they forget is that the workers actually are the ones that have the power. And it turns out, as I think you all demonstrated, bosses are more afraid of workers when it comes down to it. Now, they did rescind the injunction and dismissed any legal charges against the union. Is that correct? Yes. You know, throughout the entire summer, there were naysayers who thought that if we went on strike, we, we would lose the union. And that has been proven false. Uh, and, you know, we didn't get everything that we wanted to, but we spat in their eye and got away with it. And we have shown to the entire world how grossly incompetent the administration of this university is. And I think that was important. Do you think going into the future that it will be a necessary objective for your union to obliterate the no strike clause in your current contract? Uh, it's hard to say. I think that would be uh, very ambitious. You know, I've heard from the university president that he just doesn't know how to negotiate with people who would agree to something like a no strike clause and then just break it as if this was something that we like. Yeah, well, we're agreeing to that. That's not just something that you're forcing us to do because it's so standard. I'll also add, we were hearing from the regents like, how can you go on strike right now? Like, why would we talk to you? Aren't you just going to go on strike again? Aren't we validating that if we give you an agreement? Well, actually, you know, we're in a world historic pandemic that doesn't just come up every other year. So maybe that's why we're going on strike. <laughs> and again, it's the fear of workers. They, I mean, it's, you know, I do think one of the lessons that the left has to teach people is that there's nothing the ruling class fears more than the rule of the angry mob. And like, they clearly look at workers, even educated grad workers as an unruly mob at the end of the day. Yeah. So maybe we should just act like it more. And the, you know, the, really formative strikes in the history of the labor movement have always been illegal. Exactly. I like that you entertain some of these more like philosophical from up above kind of questions about where do we go. But I'm curious to know more concretely, what do you think is in the immediate horizon and future of GEO? Like, what do you think this year is going to look like for you? What are some goals that the union has set for itself in the wake of this recent victory? So we're still figuring that out. I guess longer term, we're going to be preparing for our next contract campaign. Uh, we're on a three-year cycle, so it's about two years away. Um, we're definitely going to have our policing demands front and center. I am sure we're also going to have climate change demands front and center, as we did in the last campaign. Uh, more immediately, we have a series of like special conferences that we won both in this campaign and the previous campaign um, that we're going to need to organize around for the university. Uh, one that's close to my heart that I'm excited to organize is about uh, letters of recommendation, which is a freedom of speech issue, the right to participate in a boycott by denying a student a letter of recommendation. So that's something that I think there's going to be a lot of energy behind. Um, and we're going to continue to work with the other organizations that have sprung up on campus in 
response to the university's pandemic and reopening plans. Um, these include undergraduate organizations, faculty organizations, and other labor organizations. Uh, we're part of group called the All Campus Labor Council, which is a campus, or sorry, a council of the campus unions uh, that meets. Um, so we'll be working to strengthen those bonds there and yeah, just broadly try to push back against the corporatization of this university. This is something you were saying that I should have asked earlier for clarification, but it seems to me like from what's written on the website that you all were able to actually win a victory for an undergraduate group in terms of getting them a representative on this police committee? I wouldn't want to take credit away from them because they did a lot of very impressive organizing themselves. And I think they deserve the credit for that. I mean, I think it certainly like helped them to be in the broader context of these campus uprisings, but they, do, they really deserve the credit for that. They're incredible organizers themselves. So you got a lot of coalition building to continue nurturing? Absolutely. Not saying that I hope that y'all do have to go on strikes to respond to world historic moments and <laughs> the crisis of capitalism. But then again, it is a cyclical crisis, so I don't think people should be shocked when the next one comes. But I wonder if there's any like final words or comments that you just want to share, things that you're hoping that other people learn from GEO and your experience on the picket line. Yeah, I just want to reiterate the importance of thinking big about what it's possible for a labor union to demand, thinking beyond these so-called bread and butter issues, to issues of social justice and community justice. Workers should be fighting for greener companies where they work. They should be fighting for better communities. These issues are all connected. Little example for us, the one Republican regent is a major slumlord in Ann Arbor. He owns a lot of student housing, rental housing, which is incredibly overpriced. And it's, you know, I don't, I can only speculate, but it seems suspicious that the decision was made to reopen when he stood to lose tens of millions of dollars if students didn't come back and occupy his rental units. So, you know, any workplace is part of a broader community. And I think it's incumbent upon workers to try to push for change beyond the workplace and in the community because all these things are connected. Fully agree with that. I love the uh, the title of Jay McLevy's first book because it's we have to raise expectations and then raise hell. And I think that these are lessons and these are uh, calls to action that need to be heard more. So I really appreciate your time. Looking forward to keeping up to date with what's happening in GEO and wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much.